Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Development and Plasticity of Complex Movement Representations. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nino Ramirez and Professor Cam Teske. So let's get started. Thank you very much, Jamie. And hi, Cam. It's a great honor to talk to you today. And and I've heard that it's uh, plus six degrees in Celsius and in Calgary right now. So we'll have a hot discussion here, and I look forward to it. Now, your article really draw my attention because you talk about the topographic uh, development of the motor cortex in red pups. And as you know, we all grow up learning about the concept of the sensory and the motor homunculus in our brains. And indeed, it's a topic that has been studied for, for more than 150 years. But as you point out, our ideas about the motor bypass changed and it's currently still changing. And there are many areas of terra incognita in our brain. And I think it's also important to point out to the listener right away that uh, when it comes to motor cortex, the situation is different from sensory areas because these motor areas are where the brain uh, generates intrinsic activity to encode a movement. So as opposed to regions like sensory areas where you can just stimulate a sensory receptor and then look exactly where does it map to. So it's a more different problem. And, uh, but we, before we go now to your particular study, I would appreciate if you could give uh, to the listeners an overview of the history, the methodologies, and also how our concepts are changing when it comes to motor cortex mapping. So Cam, please go ahead. Thank you, Nino. It's terrific to be here today and to chat with you again. And I'm really pleased to be able to talk about our published article in general physiology. So if anybody's interested in the history of uh, the motor cortex and the methodologies that have been used, Michael Graziano wrote a terrific book called The Intelligent Movement Machine. And I'd highly recommend this book to anybody interested in motor cortex. In fact, several Christmases ago, I bought the book for all of my graduate students and postdocs in my lab at the time. That was their Christmas present for me. And they all had to read it. And then we had, of course, lots of discussions about this book. It's a terrific book. Anyways, back 150 years ago, as you said, when people started to investigate motor cortex by stimulating it directly, the methodology used hadn't crystallized yet. And people were using AC current and DC current. They were using very short stimulation trains or very long stimulation trains. Uh, And the way they applied the current was different between laboratories. And what happened was about... In the late 1800s, the group finally decided how it was best to stimulate cortex, and the methodology crystallized around using short trains. Long trains were criticized because they were thought to to cause seizures, and of course, when you're stimulating on the surface, you were stimulating with a lot of current, so as the current trains got longer, people were concerned about current spread and these sorts of things, so it crystallized around short trains, but I want to talk specifically about one study in particular, because it was highly influential. And this was a study by Beaver and Horsley in 1890. And what they did is they stimulated the surface of the brain with short trains of stimulation. And then once they had finished mapping out the topography of the movements that they observed, they then removed all of the gray matter. They aspirated out all the gray matter, and then again applied the stimulation to the axonal stumps at the top of the corpus callosum. And what they observed was they got exactly the same movements 
whether it was to the surface of the cortex with the cortex intact or just to the axonal stumps at the level of the corpus callosum. And they reached the following conclusion that the neocortex was organized to make simple muscle twitches. And in fact, it was the spinal cord that was responsible for making complex movements and integrating these twitch commands from the neocortex. What's interesting about that uh, conclusion is you can still read that in textbooks today. In textbooks today, you can still find that the motor cortex is about simple muscle twitches and it's the spinal cord that does a lot of integration. Now, I'm not gonna say bad things about the spinal cord because it's a terrific structure and it does a lot of things, including integration, but Michael Graziano came along about a decade ago and showed in primates that when you did stimulate with long trains and you did it in a very careful manner that you can get complex movements from the neocortex. So the motor cortex is also organized not only to make twitches, but also to make these complex movements or multi-joint movements. And of course, we followed that up in rats. And uh, we published a, a, a causal experiment a few years ago, and this was by my PhD student, Andrew Brown. And not only did we get complex movements out of the forelimb areas of rats, these are adult rats, but we also did the causal experiment where we inactivated what's known as the rostral forelimb region. It's also the grasp region and the grasping movements went away in animals performing naturalistic tasks like picking up pieces of food and these sorts of things. So that most anterior region, which had been called the rostral forelimb region, I would call that the grasp region because it also makes these complex grasping movements. So this particular paper that uh, you've kindly published in general physiology is looking at the development of these grass movements, which is a complex movement, but also elevate movements, advanced movements and retract movements, which are also complex multi-joint movements and how they are topographically organized and how this changes with postnatal development. Wonderful. So basically the, the concept changed from the control of individual muscles to actually the control of complex movement. So I think that's fascinating. And maybe the old, uh, you know, when people talk about the upper motor neurons in the cortex, you know, it's, it's a reminiscent thing about this idea that they control single muscles. And clearly this is a paradigm change that, that needs to be known. Could you maybe summarize the main findings of your study to the listeners so, so we're all in the same page? Certainly. So in this study, we used a train of stimulation that's about a half a second in duration. And the reason we chose that duration is because that's about how long it takes the rat to make these movements. We're contrasting this with short trains, which are about 40 to 60 milliseconds in duration. And of course, those are too short to make adaptive or ethologically relevant move movements. You can only get twitches with the very short ones. So we're giving these half second trains of stimulation at animals, these are rat pups at various ages. And the first thing that we observed is that we can still get simple movements from these animals. We still get these twitches. And these twitches are, even though we're stimulating with 500 milliseconds of, of current, these simple twitches are seen days before we start to see the complex movements, okay? So that was the first observation. Simple movements preceded complex movements and development. The next one, and, and I think perhaps the most important one, is that the topography, of the complex movements is predictable in adults and somewhat static, but this is less true during development where we see the emergence of these complex movements, 
but where they're located in the cortex changes with development and they seem to be you know, interacting with each other. Sometimes the grasp area is a little bit larger in a particular area, sometimes an elevate movement, and they change over time as the animals develop until they finally reach that more static, you know, adult form at about age 90 days. The third uh, observation we made is that when we train the juvenile rats intensively, and we do this by having them reach through a slit and grasp a food pellet and, and then eat the food pellet, when we do that, it alters the expression of these complex movement areas. So in, in other words, the grasp area, and they're, they're using quite a bit of grasp in this movement, it actually expands. It's actually larger on the side of the brain opposite to that reaching forelimb, the contralateral side. And lastly, we also reduced inhibition uh, by applying biculum to the surface of the brain and we found that the organization of these complex movements is not a simple case of reducing inhibition. And depending on whether the, the movement is in the rostral forelimb area or more caudally in what was called the caudal forelimb area, these, these uh, different complex movements, they fight for each other for cortical space. Fascinating. Thanks so much. This is really giving us a great overview. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper here in your study. So can you talk about the methods and specifically, you know, how do you measure skills? Because that seems to be a critical parameter here in your study. Yeah, certainly. So a colleague of mine at the University just south of Calgary at the University of Lethbridge named Ian Wishaw, he's devised many tests for rats. In fact, we call Ian the rat whisperer. And uh, one of the tests that he really developed is called the single pellet reaching task and you have animals in a plexiglass chamber and there's a slit at the front and they, they are taught to reach through the slit for a small little banana flavored pellet on a pedestal and they grasp that uh, and then they put it in their mouth. And it takes them you know, several days, uh, sometimes a, a week or so to learn to do the task and to become highly proficient at it. And that's the way in which we train them up on skill. And we, we simply measure of the number of reaches they make in a certain period of time, how many of those reaches are successful. And that's the way in which we look at skilled and motor skill. In terms of methodology for the maps, we use what's known as intracortical microstimulation. And there was a fellow at Columbia University who was actually of Japanese extraction, Hiroshi Azanuma. And he was the innovator that took surface stimulation that was used by Penfield and all the forerunners before Penfield. And he went and put an electrode right into layer five, which is the output layer of motor cortex, where those cortical spinal projections start. And he stimulated in CAT and found that you could get, get away with one one hundredth of the current intensity to get a muscle twitch. And so we use Hiroshi Azanuma's intracortical microstimulation methodology. We're doing it in rats um, where we stimulate directly in layer five. And what that allows us to do, Nino, is create high resolution maps um, because we're giving such little current compared to the old you know, surface stimulation days. Wow. So Cam, we should call you the, the cortex whisperer using these microstimulations to, to whisper to the cortex. Fascinating. Now, when it comes to your finding, you know, one of the key findings is that you go from these simple movements representation to the complex movement representation. So the question is, you know, what happens to the representation of the simpler movements? Do they just go away? Are they replaced or is this added on? 
Yeah, so I used the metaphor before that the representations are fighting for cortical space. And what happens is that they're still there. The, the simple representations do not go away, but they do move relative to the complex uh, representations. And the complex representations during development move with respect to each other as well. So it's like they're all fighting for a piece of, of the motor cortex. You know, and Cam, basically inhibition seems to play a critical role here in establishing these boundaries. So, so how does this excitation inhibition control the map and how is it homostatically regulated during development? And also how are these boundaries maintained in, into adulthood? So lots of questions, but could you go deeper into that camp? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. And when I say it's an excellent question, that means that, you know, we really don't know the answer, which is why it's still an excellent question. If we knew the answer, then, you know, it's no longer an excellent question. Uh, we do know that inhibition is important and we do know that inhibition levels in the neocortex change with development, right? And of course, it also changes with advanced aging as well. So you have an increase in inhibition uh, during development. And of course, you have also a loss of inhibition in advanced aging, although that's not the subject of this particular uh, paper. But I'm going to use a metaphor now to try, uh, you know, to try to get across um, the role of inhibition in motor maps. This uh, metaphor was first relayed to me by Randy Nudo. Uh, and I consider Randy Nudo to be my, my grandfather in ICMS world because I was trained by a person, Jeff Klein, who trained with Randy Nudo. And, and the metaphor goes like this. Uh, I'm going to ask you a simple question. How big is the big island of Hawaii? Okay. Do you want to, do you want to uh, just, I, tell me I, how I've you never been in Hawaii. Question. Big. <laughs> okay. It's big. But when most people are faced with the question, the answer they'll give is, well, you know, I would take a satellite view of how big the island is. And then I'd have, you know, some sort of automatic uh, software tell me the, the size of the island. But what's embedded in the question, or excuse me, what's embedded in that answer is the notion that I was asking you how big the island of Hawaii is above the surface of the ocean. But in fact, I didn't ask that question. I asked how big the island of Hawaii is. And the island of Hawaii is huge, the big island. In fact, it's the, it's the tallest volcano on the planet when you take it from the ocean floor, much bigger than Everest's. So really what you wanna do, if you wanna answer the question, how big is the island of Hawaii, the big one, is you have to drain the Pacific Ocean, okay? Okay, so that's the metaphor where inhibition is the Pacific Ocean. And what we do when we put bicuculin on the surface of the brain is we drain the water of the Pacific Ocean, we take away all inhibition, and we can find out how big the motor map is. Now, the map that I'm particularly interested in is the map of the forelimb, okay? There are other maps uh, beside the forelimb. There's hind limb, and of course, there's neck and, and these sorts of areas. But I'm particularly interested in the forelimb area. And how big is the forelimb area? Well, I can tell you with normal mapping procedures, in fact, the forelimb is twice the size of what we see when we normally derive a map with intracortical microstimulation. And that's because there's always this balance of excitation and inhibition. And we actually enhance inhibition because these maps are derived under ketamine anesthesia. So when you apply bicuculin and take away all of the inhibition, then you see that the map of the forelimb is in fact twice as big as you would normally see in a map without having the inhibition reduced. This is important to understand when we talk about the role in, of inhibition because there is a general role of inhibition and then there's a specific role that has to do with the boundaries of the defined movements, okay? 
I think the, foil, the final point I'd like to make with respect to inhibition is it's not as simple as just GABAergic inhibition. It's much more complex than that. Uh, and I had a terrific postdoc in my lab a few years ago uh, by the name of Jeff Boychuk, who now has his own lab at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And what he found is that the current IH has a terrific and important role in the expression of these movements and in the expression of, of skilled motor behavior. And when you interfere with the proper expression of IH, the behaviors change and the maps change. Totally exciting. And, and we're very interested also in the IH current because it kind of regulates this, the dendritic arborization and how it processes inhibition. And I think it points to another very important aspect that inhibition is a synaptic phenomenon which has to interact with intrinsic membrane properties that regulate the excitability of these neurons. Now, when it comes to inhibition in particular, it relates, of course, also to epilepsy, where we know that you change your GABAergic transmission, the receptors are changing. So how does it affect not only seizure activity, but also the boundaries of this motor map? Is there any idea? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. That's, that's uh, something that uh, I've been studying for, for over 10 years. We have a number of publications on this. I consider it my wheelhouse. In people with epilepsy, there has been great motor map studies done in people with epilepsy, and they find that the maps are larger. And the reason the maps are larger is because excitation uh, versus inhibition, excitation is winning a little bit more and inhibition is receding in epilepsy. And we know this in our rodent studies because the amount of current that you have to apply to layer five in order to get a movement is much less in animals that have had seizures uh, than in animals that are, that are controls that haven't had the seizures. And it doesn't matter how you induce the seizure. It could be with canic acid, it could be with pilocarpine, it could be with electrical kindling, maximum electric convulsive therapy, it doesn't matter. Uh, when you do this, you reduce inhibition, you get larger maps, and of course, the behaviors are changing as well. Fascinating. And so do you think that you could use intracortical microstimulation like you've done in your experiments actually to treat epilepsy, not let's say to suppress the excitation level, but really to bring the order back to the, to the map and try to restore activity to normal? Yeah, I think it's a possibility. It wouldn't be the first methodology I would choose because it's, uh, you know, it's invasive. Um, and I think there are newer methodologies that are, are more amenable to this. So perhaps TMS, uh, transmagnetic stimulation or direct current stimulation. These are, these are um, methodologies that you can apply to the surface of the skull, in fact, without doing anything invasive and change levels of inhibition for short or longer periods of time. And so I think there's a growth industry there that you could change levels of uh, inhibition in the correct direction uh, for people with epilepsy, particularly if they have frontal lobe epilepsy with motor problems. Of course, there's also uh, you know, pharmacological approaches uh, you could use as well. The issue is, is if you're trying to boost inhibition with a drug, you're, you're, you're boosting inhibition everywhere and then you're gonna run into you know, side effects. So what you really wanna do is, is uh, in, enhance inhibition locally and that's why maybe some of these electrical stimulation methodologies are the way to go. Interesting. So, so not only interesting, maybe in context of epilepsy, but let's say, for example, cerebral palsy, where you have asymmetries, you know, left and right asymmetries. Do you think that is also due to changes in balance of inhibition excitation in different areas 
that we, you know, distort your maps. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think uh, cerebral palsy. I also think that motor deficits after stroke is a promising area for treatment. Um, where you where you would want to modulate the level of, of uh, inhibition after or during stroke recovery, especially in the context of rehabilitation therapy. Uh, and then the other example that comes to mind is dystonia. So um, this is seen often in concert level pianists or, or concert level musicians, I should say, should say more broadly. So I'm thinking of, of violin players specifically, where they're practicing hours and hours every day making complex finger movements Uh, on the strings. And what happens in a subset of these people is uh, they start to fail to make the appropriate movements. And when you look at the maps of their hand region, you find that the finger uh, representations start to fuse and are not separate. And what, what you then do is you train these people to make non-musical movements of their fingers on a little device and the map reorganizes, the finger representations become separate and the dystonia goes away. Totally fascinating because I was thinking like, you know, like on one hand, you want to expand your map, but there's only finite kind of uh, landscape here. And at one point, you probably start to invade other areas that then actually become prohibitive, uh, you know, for fine control. Interesting. So people have used that uh, to control pianists and violinists, etc. Yes, they have. And it, there's, a, there's a bigger principle here. And that is, is that many people think that plasticity is always good. And of course, there's two sides to every coin. Plasticity is good if we're talking about recovery after a stroke or during development and developmental plasticity. But it also can have a darker side. And in certain situations, plasticity actually works against the individual. And you have to put constraints on the plasticity so they don't run into the dystonias and these sorts of things. Wow, now you're scaring our young violinists and pianists <laughs> to practice because I think it's just the extreme that you point out. So what is the role of uh, brain-computer interfaces, you think, in rehabilitation medicine in this case? So I think this is a, a fascinating future. And uh, I, I have done some, uh, some work for companies that uh, are investigating this. Um, I can't talk about specifics. Uh, you know how it is, Nino. Um, but I think it's a great growth industry. I'm very excited about the potential to help people rehabilitate after injuries, uh, however they're uh, acquired. And I think this is really an important uh, area and uh, a growth area. Yeah, because I think what we're learning is the specificity of stimulation is the critical part and the understanding how the brain encodes and decodes information and how we're approaching it often in neuromodulation is pretty rough and coarse. And I think that has to change. And uh, absolutely. Now we talked a lot about motor cortex. And so do you think there are also concurrent changes and coordinated changes occurring in somatosensory cortices? And then also, you know, there are multiple premotor areas. So where do you draw the line, you know, between somatosensory and motor areas and how is this coordinated? Sorry for the complexity of that question. That's a complex question. That's great. I'll, I'm going to break it down. So the first question really was, do I think the same sort of things are happening in somatosensory cortex? And, and I, I certainly do. The somatosensory cortex experiments as traditionally done are very difficult to do and very complex because you have to record from one area in cortex. Then you have to stimulate a whole series of muscle groups, then remove <laughs> move your recording electro, do it again. And these are all day experiments. Now, more recently, we can use calcium imaging uh, and, and do this much more rapidly. And there's some fantastic work coming out. 
But definitely, when you're seeing changes in motor cortex, you're seeing complementary changes in somatosensory cortex because those two cortices work, work so uh, interconnectedly. In fact, um, I think you'd be interested to know and our listeners be interested to know that the division between motor cortex and somatosensory cortex is somewhat artificial. So, you know, when we teach these things in anatomy classes, we give students, you know, these, uh, these coloring books and motor cortex you color in red and somatosensory cortex you color in green, you know, in, in the human brain. And that, that is the wrong message. And I'll tell you why. One third of all the cortical spinal neurons. So these are the neurons. These are motor neurons that project from neocortex to spinal cord. A third of them are found in the somatosensory side of the central sulcus. So um, it, there's no clear division between what is somatosensory and what is motor. What happens is, is that sensory information comes up through thalamus, as you know, and comes into layer four. And then layer four is farming out information from one to six, but that is done in cortex, regardless of whether there's motor neurons there or not. So it's not a clear division. They're certainly integrated. The larger question that you're then asking is really is, is neocortex neocortex? And the answer is only to the extent that it has six layers. So anatomically, it is isocortex with a, a couple of uh, exceptions. Um, it's six layered, but what we uh, know about the way information is processed in occipital cortex in visual areas versus auditory areas versus somatosensory areas and then motor, there are rule differences across those different areas. So yes, it is all six layer cortex, but the way in which information is processed does differ dramatically across those areas. We happen to know the most about visual cortex because of the history of neuroscience, going back to Hubel and Weasel and, and, you know, and since then, um, but all of the rules that we've learned in uh, visual cortex don't necessarily apply to motor cortex, for instance. Fascinating, Cam. So basically the, the central sulcus is not a Grand Canyon here. And they're, they will be bridged and they will be the actions. Now, in your discussion, you also uh, compare similarities to the auditory cortex. So you haven't mentioned auditory cortex yet, but would you mind to spend some words on it? Yeah. Um, with respect to development, there are things that happen in auditory cortex that serve for us to be a template for some of the things that were happening in motor cortex. There's pruning, there's refinement, the way in which uh, auditory information is tonotopically organized does have some similarities to the tonotopic organization in motor cortex. And I had a, you know, a really close colleague by the name of Yas Egermont, who, uh, who taught me everything I know about auditory cortex. And, uh, and there are some really important parallels between motor cortex development and auditory cortex development. And I'm sure that's also true with other cortical areas. It's just that, that we decided to focus on auditory in, in this particular paper. Great. Now, when it comes to evolution, you know, motor cortex, of course, plays a different role in different species, etc. So let's say, for example, the human that developed this incredible hand representation, etc. Do you see like growth and, and changes in boundaries also from the evolutionary perspective that you see that in the cortex reflected? Yes, and uh, there are people working in this field um, that have uh, mapped a whole variety of species in their motor cortex, as well as their somatosensory cortex. So I'm thinking about John Koss, for instance, uh, is the first name that would come to mind. And there are large uh, species differences. 
And of course, that is going to be a function of the particular evolutionary niches and environments that these animals found themselves in over long periods of time and how they changed. So I, I would like to address this and come back to an earlier point. People very often talk about M1 when they're referring to motor areas in rats and mice. And I'm one of these people that don't like that terminology because the notion is, is that there's a primary motor cortex called M1, then there might be secondary uh, motor cortices. And, and I'm one of these people that don't believe that there are secondary motor cortices in rodents. There's no question that there is in people. And I think that was one of the big, uh, big findings that, that Wilder Penfield's name can be attached to is that secondary motor cortices in, in our species, certainly. And I, I'm also convinced that these uh, other areas exist in primates, uh, in macaques, for instance. There's no question in my mind that there are secondary motor cortices in, in primates, but I'm not convinced that that's true in rats and mice. So the argument has been that this rostral forelimb area that I talked about, which I was calling the grasp area, that that is somehow a secondary motor area and it sends heavy projections to the caudal forelimb area, which was considered M1. And I, I just don't believe it because the rostral forelimb area also has very strong connections to the spinal cord, as does the caudal forelimb area, and they both have strong reciprocal connections with each other. So I'm not willing to say that one is primary and one is secondary. And I think what happened is people understood the, the general topography in primates and went looking for it in rodents and saw it there, but it's not really there. It's, it's all primary in rodent motor cortex, in my view, anyway. Fascinating. Makes sense. Now, you had some co-authors on your paper, and would you mind to quickly tell the listener, you know, how did you get motivated to undergo this study? And, and what was your, the role of your students in this uh, study? Yeah, I'll just give you a, a brief history. So we published a, a paper in Journal of Neurophysiology, oh, I think it was back in uh, 2012, by Nicole Young. And Nicole Young was a PhD student in my lab at the time, absolutely terrific, went off and did a postdoc with John Koss, who I just mentioned. And she was the one that did the short duration or the short trains of intercortical microstimulation and looked at the development, the postnatal development of MAPS. And it was a terrific paper. It's, it's well cited. We're really pleased with that paper. And then Andrew Brown, who was my PhD student after Nicole, he did the long trains in adults. And I talked about the cooling study in which he removed the rostral forelimb area with cooling and, and found that, that both the MAP and the behavior went away. And so now we had the long train working in my lab, and it was time to follow up on that Nicole Young paper with the long trains during development. And I was able to attract a terrific graduate student to my lab by the name of Anna Singleton. And she came in and she was trained by Andrew Brown how to do the long train, how to, how to carefully measure the behavior, and how to do the derivations of the map. And she was the one that took it as her own project. You know, I'm thinking the great thoughts in my office. She's the one in the lab actually doing the work. And she did a terrific thesis and a terrific project. And that's why uh, the paper is Singleton, Brown, and Teske. That is so nice. I'm just going to give a plug here. So Anna, after she finished her, her master's in my lab, is now a PhD student at the University of Sydney on the other side of the planet and is doing a, a great PhD thesis down there. And Andrew Brown is uh, doing a postdoc in Texas in Jeffrey Boychuk's lab. So they're both highly <laughs> successful and doing great work. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I've visited your lab and I, I see the bustling atmosphere there and the wonderful interaction you have with your students, which is, as always, key for a great study. So, so thanks for giving us this background. Now, Cam, what kind of important key take-home message can you give the listener, you know, that comes out of your study here? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say there's there's three main highlights that I'd point to. The first one is, is that the motor cortex is organized to generate complex movements. Uh, I think that's uh, that's been put to rest now, whether it is or isn't. It is. Uh, Michael Graziano was right, and it also exists in rodents. I think the other one is that the development of complex movements are more plastic uh, during development than they are in adulthood, uh, and that has important implications for when there's brain injury in a child uh, versus an adolescent versus an adult versus someone that's aging or, or aged, uh, that the way in which we'd approach the rehabilitation or the therapies uh, would have to be different depending on the, uh, the age, the developmental stage in which the injury occurred. Um, I think that's a very important point of the paper. And the last one, which of course is implied, we, we just touched this briefly in the discussion, is that more research is needed. More research is needed in rodents, more research is needed in primates, and more research is needed in our own species. The community of motor uh, researchers is relatively small uh, within the neuroscience larger community. And uh, I think that there's a, a great need to have more people investigating these areas. Cam, that will inspire all our young scientists going into neuroscience, studying motor cortex and movements in general, and then ultimately submitting to journal neurophysiology, which is uh, very grateful for these complex studies that address so fundamental questions. So, Kim, as always, so nice talking to you and let's keep in touch and I look forward to your next paper. Thank you so much. All the very best. Great to see you and talk with you today, Nino, and I wish you all the best. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.